netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Jules Zerbach, the CEO and co-founder of Otoy, creators of the Octane Renderer. If you do search for Otoy at FX Guide up at the top of the page, you'll see that we've had a lot of coverage of the company over the years. And this conversation is catching up with some cool, interesting stuff that they're doing now and looking forward to in the future. And I just want to give kind of a bit of an overview of this before we dive into the podcast, because there's so much detail in the podcast. You could say that uh, what Mike and Jules will be talking about effectively began in collaboration with work with Gene Roddenberry's son to create kind of a museum or library of sorts or campaign of sorts to document various things about Star Trek. And they started with the original Enterprise by creating a really large and extremely detailed model with textures of the entire ship. And this opened up things such as the ability to move around. And this is the ship. And this is actually used at a public event in Las Vegas where people and fans were in front of a display and they could use a game controller to actually move around the entire Enterprise and experience it on their own in front of a monitor. Um, that's actually pretty cool to have the freedom to walk around the original Enterprise. And they've now created models actually for all the Enterprises, not just the first one. Um, actually, those of you who may have seen the recent Apple keynotes will probably recognize this as uh, Otoy's work has been featured in the most two recent ones. I think Jules was on uh, two most recent ones. Okay, so that's part one. The second phase is now that they've got this really detailed model of the Enterprise, they thought it'd be interesting to try out using it for virtual production. So they decided to create recreate scenes from the original pilot, not the actual first episode, the, the pilot, which was filmed, say, a year or two before the series was greenlit. Uh, so, for instance, they brought in an actor who looked like Leonard Nimoy to play Spock. And while it looked like a lot like Leonard Nimoy, and they did use some prosthetics that looked pretty good, um, but instead of just simply filming him in front of an you know LED production wall, they decided to take the next level and actually um, incorporate real-time generated eyes on him as they were filming, since the eyes are obviously so critical and distinctive uh, with everybody, um, especially uh, Leonard Nimoy. And you can read a bit more about that in our online article and show notes. So again, second phase, doing some interesting virtual productions. And now that led into a third phase, let's call it. And so if you're going to film the actors, what about filming them for later use in different environments? And since Otoy has light stages for their use, they not only captured, you know, props or costumes and articles and things like that, but they're also experimenting on doing volumetric captures of actors. So this would open up the potential of experiencing the actors yourself in an AR or VR environment. Um, and it's kind of a, well, this could be the fourth phase, but kind of a similar part of this third phase is that Otoy is actually working with a manufacturer of large scale monitors that allow the display of effectively a holographic image. So imagine this big display on the wall. And as you walk by the monitor, it doesn't look as though you're looking at a monitor, but effectively you're looking through a window, uh, which your view perspective changes as you walk by of that scene behind the window or in the monitor. And what's really cool about that is it's all done without wearing any kind of eyeglasses or headwear, all right? You're not bogged down by any of that. Um, this tech is at a uh, prototype stage, uh, and they'll be talking a lot more about this as part of the podcast, but it certainly opens up a lot of really interesting potential use cases. All right, 
So that's a bit of a long intro, but I thought it was important to kind of set the stage for you about these various phases of this work. This all goes back to this collaboration with Gene Roddenberry's son. So let's go ahead and cross to the conversation now. It's Mike Seymour speaking with Jules Urbach. So Jules, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Likewise. So great to catch up with you, Mike. Yeah, no, it is great. So I was super interested to talk to you about the work that you've been doing um, uh, with the Rottenbury Archive, in particular, obviously, the stuff that's happened more recently. But before we get to the most recent stuff, just back me up on the story here. When did you guys first get involved? And and it dates before the, um, like, uh, I think, I think, like for a long time, right? You've been doing some stuff that has been partially featured in Apple keynotes and stuff. Yeah, we were just yesterday again in the Apple keynote, which is yep. crazy. And it was the Rottenberry Archive work, and it was the most recent clip, which uh, you know included uh, you know, Spock and Colt and the, you know, more characters. Um, and it, the, the very first shot of that clip, which was the uh, Enterprise approaching this planet, uh, was you know just straight up that was rendered in camera in Octane, and that was. Then that scene was then loaded on an iPad M2 and shown in a keynote. And it's pretty wild. The 16 gig can, can do full production rendering. But yeah, the Rottenberry Archive, I mean, yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention, very positive attention. A few weeks after we announced really the scope of what we were doing last year, Apple put it in their fall keynote, including with me and again this year. And, uh, you know, IEEE has done stuff. So it's definitely gotten a lot of industry attention. And I think it's also, you know, Star Trek fans, you know, the, the ones that have responded with seem to really love it. So I think we're, you know, it's a wonderful project and the history of it goes back really almost decades. Um, you know, I, I can sort of get into just a quick overview of how it, how it got off the ground. First, Rod Roddenberry, um, who is a producer on all the current, I think there are six Star Trek TV shows. His dad, Gene Roddenberry, created Star Trek. Um, and his mom, uh, Mitchell Roddenberry, was you know, played multiple Star Trek characters, um, the nurse on the series, uh, the first officer in the in the 64 pilot, um, other characters throughout the um, next generation, also was the voice of the uh, Starship Enterprise. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Rod did before she passed away was, was record all of her you know, voice in Venom so we could at some point bring her, uh, her voice back to life, at least for the ship's computer. And the, the Roddenberry um, building and his dad, Charles, I mean, there's millions of documents, millions of things that are just like crazy scripts of Star Trek that people haven't even seen. Um, there was already archiving work underway for that. But Rod had invested in Notoy. Um, he's also been my best friend forever, but he also was interested in the tech. He was one of our early investors in Otoy, And that investment was an endowment to do something down the line. And so while we were toying around with doing CG Star Trek stuff with CBS back in 2001 or two, and I helped him with um, a VR experience for Sandstar in 2016, uh, you know, Otoy artists would basically build Star Trek stuff and try to Toronto for these purposes. You know, when we got more serious about what to do um, around his dad's 100th birthday, which was in 2021, that's when the idea of like, well, we have so much tech, we have such potential here. Why don't we take do a visual archive. I mean, while the folks that are around that, that, that remember, you know, what it was like to, you know, the director, for example, of the cage that, you know, that's just for pilot, Robert Butler is 95. Let's bring them in. Let's see if we can rebuild the sets, rebuild that universe and see what people say. And so that's what we announced in, uh, I guess it was you know, summer of, of 21. Uh, and we, and we picked sort of the middle of Star Trek, you know, we're going to rebuild the enterprise one-to-one -one size life model with every 
detail basically created and, and explorable and filmable. Um, and then from there, once we did announce that, it be, we, we got enough artists on board to do all the enterprises, the entire history of Star Trek. Uh, and by the time that we got to March of this year and we were about to basically do our first one-year update, it, it became clear that we could do a little bit more because we had, uh, you know, we, we are doing things a bit chronologically. We started, you know, really finishing everything from the very first pilot of Star Trek and the TV series, the sets, the worlds, all built, all recreated with a team of artists. And then it came time to thinking about how do we, you know, we can interview the, uh, the directors and surviving cast on those sets, which we did, and put that documentary out there. But what if we were to bring the characters back? And we, we initially the reason we got into the characters at all was that the, the last living cast member from that pilot episode uh, was an actress named Laurel Goodwin. And she played Yeoman Colt, uh, who was only in that first pilot. And so we were you know, set to interview her and she passed away. It was tragic right, right as we were setting up that, that interview. Um, but the idea was that we pair her with, with a, um, an actress that, that looked like her, you know, and we, we found uh, that actress and we remade the costumes physically. And we brought her into an AR set where we could refilm her scenes, um, and it looked perfect. It looked so good that that you know when we had Star Trek, the original Star Trek, we come by and look at the look at the sun and monitor. They initially thought we were playing back, you know, video from the '64 pilot, and even the director of that pilot was like flabbergasted. So we had one person, one set, uh, you know, one series of sets, and we did do sort of a, a documentary on one end, and then we did a, a original short on the other, which was just 30 seconds using that character, and it got a million and a half views, and. Um, and both of these things, the trajectory of this project is not commercial. We're not selling anything. It's meant to be like a museum. It's like meant to be like a Smithsonian exhibit of the physical enterprise. Uh, the team that worked on that on that restoration in 2016, Michael Kuda um, and others are, are on this project. So there's a, a strong sense of preserving the physical production history of Star Trek uh, through these interviews, through scanning in. You know, we have live stage scans of, of, of assets, of, of uniforms where possible. Um, and then also, as we're doing this, whenever there's some sort of connection to the production of it, let's see if we can create the in-universe version, you know, where, where, the, um, you know, where the plywood's gone and there's a real working, you know, engineering room and, and the characters are there. So that's the premise of, of, of the archive scope in terms of recreating these 3D scenes and events, um, both in production and in-universe as we go forward. So just to be really clear for people just that are not quite as familiar with what so that we've got a 3D model that is obviously being rendered by Octane and looks magnificent. That can be obviously rendered on a flat screen like a normal thing. Then there's the concept that you could take those assets, put them in like an LED stage, have an actor stand in front of them and now filming an actor so they look like they're on the set of the Enterprise. Though of course, what's behind them is is digital. And that's what I think you're referring to as people couldn't believe that that was not just a replay of the of the original show. And yep. then and then there was this uh, experience thing that was discussed, um, which we kind of just skipped over a little, which is where somebody could actually themselves, uh, and this was, I think, in the case in Las Vegas, they would go and they would just be able to explore around with like a joystick or whatever, just moving interactively through the enterprise, as you say, um, with all of this amazing authentic detail. That's kind of like, up until this point, those are the sort of three primary things, right? That is correct. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that we figured out almost at the very end is that we were building these sets, I mean, basically just to have them at this, this the peak fidelity and quiescence. 
And, you know, while we, you know, while, while you can do offline renders and they look beautiful, we could do pass trace live renders that look great. We can put them on an LED volume or an air wall and put actors from them. That looks great. There is this, this tertiary aspect, which is you can interactively go through them. And we, 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 you know, we're still figuring out how that would work for a, a larger audience or scale. So Vegas was really just the very first time where we had announced a project a year earlier. And we said, by the time that Star Trek fans, you guys come back to, you know, a year later in Vegas, you will be able to walk the enterprise. So even though we haven't figured out, like, is this going to work in streaming? Do we support AR glasses? I mean, we're targeting light field displays as well. It's, it's going to be ray trace, right? So we have the, you know, the assets aren't the issue. We have, we have the masters, we have the digital matter, so to speak. Um, but, but the interactive experience we're, we're, are an interesting starting point. And we built those in Unreal. We have teams of artists that are equally proficient in Unreal Blueprints as they are in, 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 in Octane. And we have a path pipeline that actually goes up and down. So you can take you know, high-end C4D or, or Blender or Max assets, and they can be converted almost automatically into Unreal. And vice versa, Unreal assets can be brought up into uh, Octane or, or Brigade. And those tools are actually pretty much out there. I mean, there's, there's a lot of really great virtual production workflows where we bridge this together. But the interactive pieces were meant to give fans a chance to just take an Xbox controller, go through this on a 4K TV. And I think if, we, if COVID wasn't as much of a concern that summer, we probably would have let people try it in VR. So there's more of these interactive experiences that we're, we're, we're planning but the rollout has been pretty much location-based uh, for now. Yeah. That might change. That's up to Rod and CBS, really. So I'm really keen to get into that tech and the future bit of it, but just to complete that kind of part of the equation. So um, I'm just going to just some of the technical aspects at this point, because we're going to do the future stuff in a second. So when you were shooting on the like LED volume and you had the actress standing in as playing the role of uh, Yeoman Colt, and by the way, for those that are, noticed or seen the uh the stuff that jules is referring to the seven six five eight seven four is just her starfleet code right that's that's her number that's what the significance is so so (laughs) so when we're talking about yemen colt being filmed she was being filmed 8k on what a red helium camera i think against an led volume now what was what was generating the images on the led volume like what was producing those uh that background behind her. So we had two modes. So we had two modes, which is one, one we did straight up Unreal, which was, um, you know, with, with baking done in Octane to give it the highest fidelity. So we could actually do camera tracking live. Um, That's what, that's what you're seeing when you see the cage bridge behind her in the, in the short that we've had in March, then there's, there are things that just don't render at all in Unreal and there's no, there's no way we're going to down, down it. So for example, there's another shot that was put out in August where, it was Yeoman Colt, and, and we have a stand-in for Captain Pike next to her in the cage. Um, uh, literally, there's a cage in the, in the show, which is this underground ta- you know, cavern, and there's all these things. And that's basically an offline rendered scene. So we do camera matching for that. And that is Octane basically um, b- being camera matched to the, um, you know, t- to the 8K camera. And when we move it, we just get another render. And if you know it's fast enough that we can generate that and basically kind of do that live on set. Um, I think that the, the, so, so that those, those covered basically the two types of shots we did on the LED volume. Some were done purely in Octane. Some were just done in Octane uh, for Unreal uh, with, with Octane baking uh, the lighting and Unreal allowing us to, to generate, um, you know, live camera tracking as we were moving the camera. Yeah, I mean, shots. obviously, Otoy has both the very high-end render and also real-time um, as part of your stable of like and have for 
a long time. Um, so I'm assuming that when you're doing the Unreal Octane baking, which looks magnificent, that that was UE4 at that stage? Uh, we used UE4 to six or seven for the uh, March shoot. And I think in August we boosted it to 5.0 and we're about to move right. to 5.1. Uh, which is a great release, by the way. So we're oh, looking yeah. forward to that. So, okay. So now we've got um, an actor, and we should also add that, of course, in this uh, whole process, you also had Lawrence uh, Selleck come in and play Spock, right? We haven't mentioned, yes, he uh, wasn't, mentioned he, him. So we, so we, it, it, the process of how these these shorts and, and even the work sort of keeps expanding is that we, we see how we do you know, the last three months or six months, and then we see what the reaction is, and then we see whether or not technically we could do more. So we, we had a very narrow focus for, the, you know, for what we put out in May, which was all filmed in March, which was just the cage, and we just wanted one one actor, one person, which would be um, Yomi Cole, because that was sort of the last living actress that we could bring in yep. simultaneously. Sadly, that, you know, that's happened, but, the, you know, everyone sort of encouraged us, look, do, we want to see more of these things, okay? Um, and, and Rod okayed us going into the future and showing things that are, I mean, there's a lot of focus in the Roddenberry type around the seventies when Gene Roddenberry was developing the motion picture, there's unaired pilots, there's all this work. The motion picture is the last time that Gene Roddenberry actually really got to, to influence what Kirk and Spock were after that others took over and he created the next generation and, you know, in, in the late eighties. And that was a, a different thing. So the focus for what we shot in August and released in August, that was a one-week shoot in the first week of August. That did include Spock. It did include, included a lot. I mean, we actually made about two minutes worth of content. Um, and, and really, you know, maybe a quarter of it was on the LED wall. The stuff that wasn't on the LED wall was even more interesting, which I'll get into in a moment. But, you know, the, the idea was, yes, if we were going to bring another character from the cage, there's really kind of four characters that we could that we could pull in, and Spock was the next obvious one. Captain Pike is being portrayed on on TV right now by As the Mountain Strange New World show. Um, so there is there was an interest to, to let's let's try Spock and let's see if we can bring him do an older Spock, something that you haven't seen in a while. Leonard's obviously unfortunately passed on, and as it turned out, um, you know, with Yomi Cole, the actress, uh, my taste of trader, I mean, looks so close that we didn't even change her her eye color. It was it was a thing we thought about, but their shots were, they were so close to the eyes, we didn't want to do it in CG and we didn't add the lenses and no fans were upset about that. Well, her eyes were brown in the comic book, so it works. With Spock, we, as Lawrence looks so much like Leonard. And I think he's also, I mean, you know, he's in his 50s. He's been thinking about this character for a while. He's not a professionally trained actor, but he is, you know, somebody that, that it was clear when we auditioned, were auditioning different people, he looked so close to him with prosthetics, we can get, you know, we, we could do this in camera and yep. the mannerisms and everything were just in, in, incredible. So it, it was, you know, after doing about a year of, of trying out different um, people that could potentially play these things, we weren't even sure that we were going to go forward with that. Um, it made sense to, to bring him in. Uh, and we did a lot of different tests on prosthetics. And there are shots in that teaser where it's just, it's not even a wig. It's just his hair. It's him with a you know completely rebuilt neck and face that, that make him look as close as possible to how Spock might have looked. It's a weird hybrid version of Spock, where it's like Leonard Nimoy was was uh, in in, in um, seventy nine when he filmed the motion picture was about eight years older than Spock should have been. Spock should have been in the motion picture only a year or two older than he was on the TV show because the motion picture is supposed to take place only eighteen months or so after. And, uh, and so we kind of didn't try to match exactly what he looked like in the film. We, we just tried to go for something that, you know, would, would match what Gene Roddenberry put in the novelization or, this, or the script for, the, for this, which is this 
you know, Spock's pretty much just a year or two older than he was in, in the TV show. He's in this uniform. And, uh, and that was the impetus for, for the look of, of, but there of was, and the design choices made. But there was some digital work done over the top oh, yes. of that. Because he, yes, most, absolutely. unlike, unlike Yemen Cole, uh, she looked, as you say, like so much like it that you didn't touch it, but there was like presumably an extra layer. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, and the thing is we didn't, you know, we, we experimented with everything sort of going into, into the production um, starting with the fact that we were, we were basically, we didn't want to do any digital pieces, but it became clear that, that for the eyes and the teeth and the inner mouth and the, and the, and those areas, uh, it made a huge difference because I think that there is only so much that we could do with prosthetics um, on around the eyes. So that was one area where we basically did digital rotoscoping. We don't have to use mark, you know, we don't have to use dots or tracking. It just automatic tracking now is pretty trivial. Otoy wrote custom software to basically take um, you know, we, we, you know, Clay Sparks, our chief creator officer, did a Spock bust. You actually could see that for a second in the teaser where Spock's in the space. So that is just purely the CG model. And we modeled, um, you know, pieces of, of, of Leonard's eye sockets and other things and applied them as digital makeup really on top of the, uh, on top of the performance. And we could do that in real time. It was a uh, custom piece of software that allowed us to do it, about, to do it in camera while we were filming. So it wasn't a post effect. It was done live. And we could even swap in different digital teeth. Like Leonard uh, Nimoy had a complete redoing of his teeth and mouth right before the movie, old Spock, original Spock from the TV series had a very different mouth. So we, we could switch between those. We take sort of the right version. And in the shots where you get close, like there are shots that I showed of his eyes where I said, this is digital. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it would be very hard to do that in any other way. And while he looks extremely close, we felt, you know what, this is... I think people generally don't like the idea of, of digital and CG, you know, especially for actors or, or characters that they, uh, you know, they don't love. So this is this felt like the lightest possible touch that we could put on on this and provide, I think, the best possible results without trying to be like, this is not a deep fake of Leonard Nimoy. There's these are pieces where if you get close to his face for this this piece, we're, we're providing a digital render and we're using markerless tracking. Um, and I think that's, that approach is, is, is a really good one. I mean, I think if we had done it any differently, if we had done a full defake or just did nothing on top of the prosthetics, it would not have hit the sweet spot that it did. So you didn't try a neural render deep fake approach? Cause I mean, obviously. Oh, oh, we, oh we did. And it looked weird. It, it did look okay. weird. And part of that is because I'll be honest, like it's Lawrence's face and it's, it's, it, 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 you know, deep fakes, I think work fine when you're doing a corridor video or. I mean, listen, what they did with the Mandalorian was a lot of work, but I think that we were, we, we also felt that it was something that it, it, it didn't serve the purposes of what we we're going for. And it was hard to make it mesh with the very similitude that we had, you know, or the realism that we we're trying to go for in camera with everything else, back to the LED walls, not that, but, but that was, that was sort of where we, you know, we found that the test where we were doing um, full face replacement, I mean, they never looked as good as what we ended up with in the final piece where we just did you know, partial CG overlays and things like that. And a big part of it also is we're doing the real people, real actors playing these things, the less digital, the better. And after sort of getting the feedback on Yemen Colt's um, appearance, we're like, this is as far as we should go and, and no more. Well, and there was, visually there's the right some choice. technical things there as well, because I mean, if you were trying to sample Leonard Nimoy's performances from say the seventies, right? you're not anywhere near the resolution that an 8K is giving you off a red helium. Exactly. And so you've actually not got the sort of skin pore texture that we would, I mean, 
even though we remember film as being crystal sharp and marvellous, if you actually go back and look at actual film from 79, the darn stuff is remarkably noisy, soft, or rather film grain. It's it's not as good as we remember it, I don't think, and certainly wouldn't uh, match what you'd get off a modern lens and a modern uh, camera. Um, but before I go any further, I do want to just, one thing we just skipped over real quick, and I'll, I'll just mention it now because I don't want to forget it. One of the lovely things about the work that you've done from this uh, museum archival kind of point of view is, um, and it gets you to just touch on this, uh, we can get to say, see an asset like the bridge, the iconic bridge of the enterprise, and we can kind of see it, how it evolved over time because yes. various production designers, various shows, films and stuff um, varied it from the cage which, by the way, if, if you're listening and you're not a Star Trek fan, the reason we haven't mentioned Kirk is the original pilot didn't have Kirk. So the original, original pilot, which was then reused later as a sort of a two-parter in the main series, this is the, the Cage pilot, actually predated um, having uh, Kirk there. So, but, but I digress. So back to the bridge. So that bridge transition is a classic example of this kind of uh, – beautiful museum. I found that just a fascinating thing to see how it had uh, evolved over time. Yeah, it's such an interesting point because everybody, when we put out that, that, that video I made for the cage and we said, hey, this is our roadmap. One of the roadmaps was, let's just show a time lapse of the Enterprise Bridge, you know, so I guess in universe really, starting from you know, the cage, even though it was filmed only a couple of years before Kirk and Spock were, were doing their thing when they started got renewed with the new pilot. Uh, it takes place 10 years before Kurtz uh, and, and Spock are, are, are on the Enterprise. And therefore, yeah, the Enterprise is 40 years old, the original one. It's, you know, it starts in the equivalent of the 2250s, and then in the mid-2280s, it blows up in Star Trek III. So, and there's another Enterprise that follows it, same exact model. And, and so what we did is that we, we've been building the interiors for all the ships throughout all the timelines. And by the time that we got to, um, to doing this, this video update in May, around the time of the cage, we was like, let's show all the bridges in time-lapse. And we did that. And it's only about 30 seconds out of that seven-minute behind-the-scenes video. But it got such attention. People were, were kind of taking it out, doing GIFs, re, you know, retweeting it, um, that, that we felt we're definitely finishing up all of the bridges. Like every enterprise, every era we are working on. And you'll have a, probably a little bit longer version of that where it'll, it'll go through every single version that was filmed. And even some of the ones that were, you know, as I say, Roddenberry before the motion picture, they had almost built... That, that movie as a, as a TV show in the 70s. So there's 70s versions of the bridge that were half built. We've recreated those. Uh, it's, it's pretty great. And I think that when that time lapse is finished, that might very well be the index into the archive itself as you just, you know, you scroll backwards and forwards in time from structured history, looking at that chair, um, you, know, you know, probably would stay most in the center with everything else evolving around it. I mean, that to me feels like the control for how you would explore the archive you know, temporarily at least in the universe. And it's a great effect and it gives a strong sense of history and, and, and where Star Trek's gone in, in a beautiful way. Before we start discussing the tech, and I'm going to go into that, as I've been saying, I do want to flag a really interesting point that came up. I think either you said it in the behind the scenes or it was certainly in one of the posts, which is the concept hasn't been approved and we're not saying it is, but there is the animated series and there was the, you know, now the technological possibility of being able to reconstruct in live action those uh, sort of 72, I think it was, um, uh, animated scripts, right? Yeah. So that's the thing is it, it's interesting because during Rod Roddenberry's trajectory, figuring out 
what how you know the archive pieces he ran across something that that unlocked a lot of the potential for how the animated series is popular today which is he found the audio tracks separate from the music before that the animated series was they just had the mixed track they couldn't release it on dvd they couldn't put it on vod so around 2005 or six literally in the physical roddenberry archive this was uncovered and you know this started this post collaboration between roddenberry and cbs where they yeah, re-released the animated series it got a whole new audience as part of paramount plus and at that point, CBS decided to make it canonical. And, and th those stories are great. I mean, they're stories written by the same writers. There were times where Gene Roddenberry was like, yeah, I, I didn't like it. But he didn't like it because it was a cartoon. He didn't like it. It wasn't that the stories were, were, were not there or that the characters, you know, they were played by the same actors. So one of the things that Rod had us do um, for the Vegas mission, we did not put out there publicly because it, it felt like it was, you know, it, it was one of those things where we felt the right thing to do is to, is to just show it as an experiment. But we did take the animated series and we took 30 seconds of it and we brought that back to life with Lawrence playing Spock with one of the cartoon characters, Arix, who just redone his CG. And, you know, the little changes, there's a little disco ball, there's a second elevator in the cartoon. Those things we redid and they look like you're filming the fourth or fifth season of, of the Star Trek TV show. And we could go do all of it. I mean, there's no doubt that if we, if we, if we had the impetus, we could figure it out. So I think Rod, was, Rod wanted to show that to say, listen, the archive can go... And if we were, if we if we're just about recreating these stories or or moments of Star Trek history, uh, like we showed you with the cage right at the beginning, it could be the animated series. It could be my dad's unfinished scripts. All of it's possible. And what's interesting is that the the animated series is canon. I mean, it's just it's just drawn, you know, filmation style, right? Yeah. And so, it's just a question of the uh, the ship of Theseus version of the physicality of these things. Like we just flip a, flip the render to real and and re retell those episodes. That's that's definitely a possibility, and it's also very possible for great novels and comics and, and Star Trek literature. That's what the seven six five eight seven four shorts were doing. Is a cult maybe had a few minutes of screen time in the in the actual TV show, um, but had you know, years of, of stories in the comics, which which showed some interesting pieces pieces of Star Trek history. So we tapped into those and brought the comic books to life, novels to life in that August short. It was really sort of meant to be a, a sort of a tour through you know, the, the meta aspect of Star Trek, um, not just the films and the TV show. And, and that's the beauty of the archive is that we can do all that. And, and we, and we might over time uh, as the tools and the technology becomes, you know, become easier. So now I'd want to start digging in on the tech. So the, the chairs, the hard surfaces, that kind of stuff, that was like a range of obviously tools, but a bunch of it was uh, cinema 4d with like ZBrush, wasn't it? Like just, uh, yeah. So, yeah. so from it, so, so the, the entire archive is really being done by a, a core team. I mean, I think we have like 20 artists working on this, which is a lot. And I would say that, yeah, the, the, the primary motion picture enterprise is all done in C4D. Uh, that's, that's the biggest asset, and it's crazy. That's one we're building every deck. Uh, the other, a lot of other assets are done in Blender. I mean, all with Octane as a renderer. And then the third tool we use is there are two artists working on the project, three that, that actually you know, model uh, the hard surface stuff in um, in Max or Maya, but then bring it in Unreal and use Octane for Unreal to get to the end point. I mean, Unreal is becoming a true BCC tool, and we're seeing less and less people use tools outside of those. You know, really the the big three: you have Blender, C4D, and 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 Unreal. Um, and our our own art team sort of reflects that. There are tools like ZBrush that you use for sculpting. Um, we we did use that for uh, for the aliens, and that's you know that that's great, but it's still not. A full DTC. Like I think the, the, the sort of the tertiary circle of those together, and, and even building a platform like we have, where you can mix and match those assets interchangeably, is um, not just a reflection I think of our own 
internal efforts, but probably also where I think where the industry at large is coalescing around, you know, as, as you go from like 20 different 3D tools, like, you know, Lightwave doesn't exist anymore. You know, it, it, you know, things like Blender and Cinema and, and I think Houdini is another big one in Unreal are really becoming um, pretty, pretty popular. Um, and those four, I think, are driving a lot of um, work, yeah, certainly at a broad scale for visual effects that are not then at, you know, massive houses, probably also within those effects houses as well. There's, there's some, some of that adoption. Yeah. So, so now one of the lovely things about Otoy is that you have a light stage and, and uh, can use that. So talk to me about that. Cause initially you were using that, I think on the wardrobe, but yeah. Yeah. So we, we did just like we did with the, um, with sort of the spot test, we did try everything. We, we basically went to had, you know, in fact, when we designed the physical uniforms, we have, um, uh, you know, uh, Mio is just as well, very well known. I have to say, very well known um, costume designer who did Kate Perry stuff. He did West Side Story. Um, he designs, you know, makes uh, a place called also handle bringing in the team that did the makeup and the and the um, and the costumes. He worked with Mio before. This he basically was able to. If we sent him an original uniform, of which we have plenty. We actually went out and bought the original motion picture uniforms, got some of the cage uniforms. He's able to recreate that perfectly, and it's incredible. So when we saw that, and we, and he would give us marvelous designer files, and we tried to render that. Hang on, wait, 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 wait. I got to stop you there. You went out and bought sure. like what you went onto eBay and found original costumes. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. we 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 own Scotty's. We um and and in the video you'll you'll see we rented all of the TMP uniforms. We had to give it back to the um proprietor because it was it was beyond our budget to frankly did not pay for all of them but we had, we kept a couple we sent those to mio and the rest of them we actually put in the light stage we have a body scanner now so we have everyone check off uh perks admiral uniform all of those you'll see some of those even in the behind the scenes photos so we have um full scans eight poses of all the uniforms all the polls so we have ground truth for that and what we did during the august shoot was we while we had the originals while we had uh, and we didn't get spots. Boxes up for option right now, so we had to recreate that from whole cloth for for, for Lawrence. Um, we we got a, a, a Mio to get us back, you know, Kurt's uniform, and we had the original one. And it's like you cannot tell, like even holding them, you really can't tell. So because we don't want to destroy and film on original uniforms, we we were pretty happy that we were able to get this physical duplicates built. And yep. kind of kind of the the thinking is sure, you know, we we can you know we can scan them in an APOS, and we can. And there are shots, by the way, and if we go into the technology of how each of those shots in that last minute of um, that short progress were constructed, you'll start to see where things really veered from the physical into the digital, but they all started from a physical starting point. And I've never seen really great, like marvelous designers, synthetic cloth match what we're seeing, just filming a person in, in that actual uniform with, with you know, ideally with, with that much digital on there. But one thing we have, that I was alluding to the fact that we have a body scanner. It's more than that. The shot, we, we, we would, as we were doing these shorts, we, we, as we were doing the, the latest short, we did test Lawrence and May in front of the AR wall for the mind melt shot. We did them in front of a green screen and then we did them separately and together in the new light stage. And what we found was that we thought we'd have to sort of have them pose and be separate because remember their hands were touching. Um, but the light stage basically put both of them in there and we got this incredibly perfect, insane recreation where I can put the lights underneath, you know, Lawrence's sleeve and we could do that shot entirely digitally in Octane. And I didn't find this out until we were at the last week of production. So we didn't end up going completely for that on this piece, but the next ones we will. And we're working on bringing that into motion. And I think that's, that's pretty awesome because it means that you can take the physical actors, their, their uniforms, 
and they can do their performance and it doesn't have to be limited by the AR volume. It doesn't have to I mean, green screen is frankly is, is necessary. Maybe if the AR volume isn't big enough, which it wasn't for, you know, the, the shot where Colt is walking through that, you know, that, on that platform or that, that temple. Um, and, and, but again, the green screen, when, when we were able to do a, take a scan of her and we, we, we basically did a walk cycle of her, of her scan data, uh, and drop that into the octane scene. It's look, it looked great, and there's nothing that we could we could do better with a green screen. Maybe if we'd gone to Vasquez Rocks and filmed it live with a drone, but you know that's that that also isn't isn't possible for a lot of the things we're doing. So scanning actors in uniforms that we can now make, um, doing whatever makeup and and hair is necessary on them, whatever minor digital work is necessary, means that we actually have a pipeline for doing content that I think is volumetric ready. And that's where I'm not sure that, that the air walls are going to give you everything that you might be able to do with a purely volumetric piece if you can have actors do entire shots with two or three of them in a you know in a stage. Well, hang on, it's, but it's let's new. just break. But let's just unpack that a bit, right? So before we get yeah. to light fields and and stuff, like uh, you've got the costumes, you've scanned them, you've got terrific information to produce something that's three dimensional that you can obviously render from any point of view, and it's going to look great. But if you want to have actors in VR or in some kind of AR or, for that matter, further down the track in a uh, Lightfields Labs monitor, you're going to have to do their faces, which basically means you need to volumetrically having them perform. So are you suggesting yeah. that you volumetrically capture the performance or that you would recreate that in, in effectively, you know, octane tech to, to have a version that can then be viewed or experienced from any particular angle? So I think it's the latter. I mean, I think that, you know, we, we've had, um, I mean, Lightsage is very well known for doing still captures and, and the body yeah. scanner that we had just used, um, which by the way was not, I mean, it, it just captures, it is like a, a holographic photo. I mean, it captures the BRDF of both actors, full body, full faces. Like, yes, the, the Lightsage gets you higher quality facial capture, but the body scanner that we built is really, really good to the point where unless you're doing an extreme close-up, like we could recreate that shot of Spock and Colt doing the mind meld because it, I, I brought Clayton to look at a, on a 4K monitor of, with an octane. He's like, oh, I didn't remember shooting that frame on the 8K red. I'm like, it's not. It's from your scan that we just you just sent me the data for in octane. And here, let me show you. I, I, I moved the camera around and you can see that. And he's like, he lost his mind. I mean, it looks so good. So we have two scanners. We do have the light stage for doing, if you want to do a really extreme close-up, we can capture that like the equivalent of 40 capture, but with BRDF data. And in those cases, there isn't really any alteration really needed. I mean, you can still apply some effect sort of on the surface like we did with Lawrence, um, even in camera or in, in, in world space. But we end up with the actors in their uniforms performing their, their roles with their faces moving, their bodies moving. And it looks really, really, really good, even at the 4K render. So I did not understand how good that could look until we finished that new LightSage scanner, tried it for this shot. And then I came back and said, you know, for the next one we do, we've got to get this thing to do at least seven seconds of performance capture and at this fidelity, which we're going for next and see how that fits in because we're not afraid to try anything. We can go back to do, doing you know, green screen or AR wall or physical pieces, but by trying all of them and by seeing which one works best, we're starting to get a sense as, as to where one piece of technology might, might subsume some of the others as things progress. But that's the plan, is that it, it is a full, super high resolution, volumetric capture, fully reliable, light stage quality, full bodies, multiple bodies. And what, what shocked me was that even with the hand touching the face, 
it's super clean. Like there's no like weird spotiness where, th- where there's contact between those two, um, two actors. It's that, it's that clean where you, you almost can't see where there's, you know, where the meshes might intersect or connect to the point where if you scanned them separately and brought them together, which we did that AB test, it looked the same. So that's, that's just interesting data points for us to consider as we, you know, use this kind of production tool for ourselves and maybe offer it to others as well. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, when we were uh, together at one of the shows, viewing some of your earlier um, uh, sort of light field work. And it, in that case, I was you know, in VR and that was remarkable. But um, of course, you know, we're talking about doing this in an environment where you're basically heading towards the holodeck. And by that, I mean, yep. you're not providing eyewear, you're not providing glasses, even AR glasses. We're talking about using um, light field displayable type devices such as light field labs, which we're going to, d- to discuss in a second. But if I just get you absolutely right on this. So when we've got Spock doing the mind meld with his hands on her face, you could just swing the camera on that to any viewpoint and you can get the correct specular because that's the big thing about like a light field done properly, right? Is it's not just that it's there and and sort of frozen in terms of relationship to all the specular highlights will move correctly. Everything will like um, feel as if my head is moving relatively to a solid volume. Yep, you, you, you do get that. And in fact, what we get back is, is a, um, you know, you get basically object segmentation. So there is a material input pin for these, these scans that, that give you hair, eyes, uh, face. And frankly, you know, the skin shader that we, that we drop in for a light shade scan, which is usually typically we just do faces and then let ILM or whomever, you know, build the rest yep. of the head. In this sure. case, you know, we get back everything. There's a segmentation step and we have, and, you know, we have super, super high resolution, high frequency normals. And the BRDF is still something we're like, I mean, sure, you know, once, once, you, once you, you sort of pick that out, it works pretty well and it's minimal. So it, it's one of those things where there is already an eyeball shader that we drop in on the eye segment piece. And we have, of course, the albedo and we have some sense of the, of the specularity. Light shade isn't great, but by the way, it highly specular surfaces, but that, that actually hasn't been an issue either. I mean, it's, it's really fairly simple for, for the... Um, for the specularity pieces to be boosted as long as we don't get bad data. And by the way, that what you're talking about, there's videos that I posted on Twitter and one, it may not have been in the main Twitter thread with where I showed the behind the scenes, but it's in, buried in there, which shows exactly that. It shows the screen capture of me in Octane moving the Colt and Spock mind scene around. And then another one where it's a time-lapse of me for 10 minutes, moving lights around, you know, push out in 30 seconds. So I want to make sure that, that you know, you, you get those links and definitely worth yeah, linking to those in the article as well. Yeah, because I mean, uh, a light stage, a light stage, made its reputation, and it's a heck of a reputation from being able to get separate uh, albedo and and specular. But of course, it just yeah. by its process of polarized light and stuff was not getting eyeballs at all, really, and for that matter, much anything much useful inside the mouth, anything that that uh, was refracting like an eyeball was just you know just not worth doing it also wasn't getting hair typically because of the fidelity of what you could get especially like i'm thinking about eyebrows now um so so i'm you know really interested to see that but if you are going to go to a light field uh sort of type model like i mean how far away is that like i've been tracking light field labs sort of off and on 
for a while now, very enthusiastic about what's happening, but like conceivably how long until either at a, a point in on a, a Vegas uh, museum, I could walk up to a wall without glasses, without uh, anything and experience that light field interpretation of your, uh, your sampled performances? I mean, it's a great question that I actually has for, for me one simple answer, which is if you have the scene graph and it's renderable, that's the missing piece, right? Because if you basically are taking some sort of, you know, thing that you filmed in 2D and you're trying to get depth extraction or do what, you know, the stereo, you know, depth estimation does, I mean, it's going to be a bit of a mess. Now, if you're building everything and you've got the entire sets that are built virtually, even if they're projected on an air wall, um, for some shots, I mean, we're still, we, we are still able to, of course, re-render those sets from that perspective since it's our render. Um, and we're scanning, and if we scan in the actors, um, while they're giving the performances and we compose scenes that way, that's how I imagine two things getting solved. One, we can, we will still render to a 4K 16 by nine or two and a half, you know, 2.4 by one aspect ratio, put that on, on, you know, online, on YouTube, wherever it is maybe get, you know, give you auto stereo, you know, depth apps. But I think for the VR, AR, and light field experience, it's actually all the same thing, which is basically you have to ray trace into your eyeballs if you're doing this in, in VR or AR. On a light field display, you have to ray trace into everyone's eyeballs all at once, which is why it's so much more intense. Yep. However, if, if it's just a ray tracing cost, then that means 16 GPUs, which is about how many, you know, a small light field lab display currently uses, 16 A, I think it's A6000s. We'll go down. I mean, obviously, it is is already at double the speed. You know, it, it's really just a question of you just need enough GPU power to ray trace into the light field display. But the scene is the same. The, you know, the shot is the same. I mean, from a volumetric perspective, you you might frame or crop things a bit differently. There's going to be a preferred you know window into what you're seeing, even in VR. You know, you can position where the camera begins and what your field of view is seeing. It's just it's almost like when you're doing IMAX and the aspect ratio changes to something more square or you're doing something that's, you know, uh, you know, ultra wide angle, three by one. It, it's just the world is there. It's just a question of what is the, you know, how are you cropping it? And from a, from an AR, VR or light field perspective, it just has to be ray traced and it needs to have that kind of ray trace source fidelity. That's why the light shade scans are important. That's why we're we're thinking about everything that we're doing from a you need to be able to walk through the set and we need to get finish what's behind there and it needs to work because if you do turn around, even in a holodeck, right, it still has to look good. It's not that different from VR. It's just we have a we have an endpoint now which doesn't require any glasses. And that could be a hundred inch holographic TV or it could be a three meter by three meter by three meter holodeck room in, in 15 years. We don't know. But either way, the you know the content of the media and the and the and the algorithms to render it are all there. So it's just compute power and and cost at this point that i think is preventing any of those things from um yeah i mean i imagine that the first implementation of this is going to be a tiled set of effectively bricks and each brick will be powered by you know it's its own sort of host of gpus and that's why an installation makes sense because uh that's a lot of compute power but also you know you can amortize the cost over the um the exhibit but just to reiterate my question again how long do you think until we could reasonably have a decent sized display that a museum type audience could walk up to or a uh, you know a theme park audience could walk up to as a uh, experience and witness that uh, so that as they walk past it it feels like it's a window to the other side of a set not a video display that is um, playing back uh, footage again no glasses Yep. 
No, I think I think it's a great question. I think we're much closer than people might realize because the you know John Carrington's you know Life of Lab company. I mean they they're building those those tiles right now. They're they're shipping them to location based you know venues that are willing to be like the first adopters pay a fortune. But those are those are happening, and you know we've been sending them for Bex files, which is what you know the, um, the Octane sort of exports right for rendering. Uh, those are basically have a special ray tracer plug into his display and we could just render those, we could pre-compute those even so that if you just have a scene that's playing out that you don't have to move through, right? The light field means that every viewpoint is there. It's literally like if you look out of a window, um, you wouldn't know if there's a light field display behind that window other than the sky maybe being 12,000 nits, which is very bright, uh, because the glass is that is a separator. So we're just blasting out 10 gigapixels per square meter. Uh, however that's done, the displays to do that are available this year and they'll be in some sort of location-based stuff um, I mean, at least in, in production within this this coming year. Uh, I've thought about this even as we look at, you know, the Smithsonian has a deep relationship with Star Trek. Like, I'm, I'm thinking for them, you know, you had to take the physical 11-foot enterprise model out of storage, in storage. This is where this kind of stuff should go. So it'll be feasible at, at insane cost in the next 6 to 12 months. And I think that's the only barrier. There's no technical barrier for this. And I'm, I'm hoping with John Carrick that we can take some of the Ron America materials and do another tour of, of you know, his, um, his lab like he did last year for CNET. Uh, we'd say I think he had an iguana or something running on the holographic display and show some of the Roddenberry content on there. That's the goal. And then from there, figure out, well, where can we put this in a museum or, or where can people experience this? Um, but I do think over the next five years, these things will drastically drop in price, like any display. You know, 4K displays used to be $150,000 back you know, when Panasonic was making the first Plasma ones. And now it's yeah four hundred dollars. So um, I don't know if the trajectory will be fifteen years, but it feels something like that in terms of the economies of scale wrapping up and making these things. Yeah, cheaper. I mean, location based can afford the infrastructure, which, by the way, is also a factor on VR AR because while the problem's simpler in one sense because you're just going to my eyeballs, um, you know, you don't have the compute power in a mobile headset. You don't even have the the data streaming to the headset kind of. Uh, so, you know, the, uh, an AR VR headset doesn't solve all these problems. You can't add a huge amount of weight to a headset without getting, um, you know, issues. Whereas, of course, if you're at a location-based setup, you can have an entire equipment room out the back that, <laughs> that is uh, plowing, exactly. through, uh, plowing through stuff. But at a higher level, I have to say for a whole generation, the idea of a holodeck, maybe without the automatically moving floor and stuff, but the just general <laughs> idea of a holodeck, um, and again, without things that materialize that you can actually sit on, that has been the inspiration for a whole range of work. I think you'd speak to Paul DeBevic, he'd say that was like, you know, when he was doing the light stage, it was like, yeah, holodeck. It's, it's a, yeah. a classic case of Star Trek inspiring science. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so much. It very much is. I mean, you know, what's funny is that when, when um, John and, and his team were leaving Lytro and moving to do this, um, I mean, in minute he described to me the technical specs of the display panel, I was like, I've been waiting my entire life for somebody to build hardware like this so that I could render it. Because for me also, I mean, I, I, it's funny. Star Trek puts these things out. There's some things just seem way off in the future. You know, you have the warp drive. You know, but other things, like there's, an, you know, Rod sponsored a Tricorder X Prize. Obviously, you look at even the next generation in the 90s, you know, part of this, you know, iPad. And 2010, the iPad comes out. It's like it didn't take 300 years. Is one of these things where the holodeck felt like it might be hundreds of years, fantastical, but we're going to get a visual holodeck anytime that we somebody wants to spend, you know, millions, maybe tens of millions to build a full size one. 
now, you know, and that's crazy. That's that, and it does require a huge amount of power, but it is very, very, very achievable. And it is a dream. I mean, it changes really the, the entire concept of how you'd experience media because right at that point, it's truly magic. There's nothing between you and the experience. There's no glasses, there's no screen really. And, um, and John's entire premise was that because these were tiled, because they can curve, because you put on ceilings and floors, absolutely the Star Trek holodex, the goal, which is why he was in the very first Roddenberry Archive video, which is why I, I brought in Rod and that team from the beginning, because like part of the part of the meta aspect of, of the Roddenberry Archive is also what's happening in the real world that's you know coinciding with with, with the fiction or you know the it's, you know future fiction of Star Trek. And my goal is that when John's got enough of a of the hardware built, we, we actually can show things that were, you know, we, we present this in a holodeck. And I think that's, that's something that does have a, I mean, people are, you know, it is a moonshot kind of thing. Like landing on the moon, building the holodeck, getting, figuring out FTL. Uh, you know, these are things that are like, they're, some things feel much more achievable. And this is one of those things that I, God bless yeah, LFL yeah. For, for, for doing that and raising the money to, to make it happen. It's, it, it was a, feels a lot like a SpaceX or Tesla move to, to go down this path and to really think about where it's going to be in five or 10 or 15 years. But yeah, one of the things that I think is really it. interesting about uh, light field technology, and again, we're running the clock forward a little, but not we're not in the area of uh, fiction, is that unlike your LED volume, where it's physical props in the middle of the room, and then round the outside, there's a curved wall that is the uh, LED display. Um, you know, you could have a prop in the middle of the room that is a light field display. Um, that would allow, you know, somebody to be walking on the top of it or leaning on it or doing something. It's not like you have to just, I mean, I think in the, obviously in the TV show, the, the principle was everything was around the outside, except for these sort of magically made hard objects that were photonically appearing in the middle of the room. But in the real world, in the, our world of real physics, you could still have an actual rectangular prop that is in the middle of the room, that it's itself a uh, light field uh, display. And it would just seem like it is whichever version of the desk of the enterprise um, you know you want. So it, it's the creative possibilities uh, are gonna be enormous. But the thought that that could happen in my lifetime, I agree with you, is just spectacularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. And, and for people that aren't familiar with how these light field displays work, you know, there isn't, it's not like in, in, in Star Wars where you have Leia just popping up in thin air. Like there has to be a surface. If you're seeing the light, yes. that means behind, no matter how it's projected, even if it looks like the chair is in the middle of the room, that's because wherever you look in the room, you're seeing some sort of holographic surface. If there's a, if there's a break, the chair yes. will just have like a, a slice cut off in the middle. But if you have an end to end, the walls are covered. Then what happens is that you have a, a surface in front of the floor, the walls, the things where you can project things, and that could be the bigger the you know the, the surface, the, the higher that goes. It could be three feet tall, so you could have a chair that would be like a ghost chair. You could you know your hand would pass through it, but that's no different than those simple things where you you know with the parabolic mirrors, mirrors you get a, 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 a you know science fair, you know where the ring or whatever it is you drop in looks like it's floating above it, and you can move your finger through it. It's it is that kind of effect, except it's digital and it's at a large scale. And there are ideas that John has for, for using um, ultrasonics to do touch. I mean, I think it would be sort of low resolution touch, but that feels like that also would be an amazing interface. But, you know, one thing that's cool is you can get so close to these light bulbs, you can put a ground glass or a magnifying glass on it, and you will see the equivalent of what would happen if you put that in front of a window. And that shows you how different this is than just lenticular or, or stereoscopic tracking or whatever. It's, it's, it's a different beast. It is literally the laws of light and physics recreated 
as you would see them in the natural world. And there's a very big difference between that and almost any other approach in terms of its, its um, reality. Just on the business side of things, obviously we've been talking about the Roddenberry Archive, but like, how does this dovetail in with the IP owners of Star Trek in just the general sense of television and films today? Like, are you working closely with a bunch of other companies or yeah. is this, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And we're sort of in this, I mean, the Rodney Archive, because it's an endowment, it's very much like a museum. It's not really, yep. it doesn't have a commercial endpoint. It's just, you know, Rod's put in a lot. We put in a lot out of love, honestly. And, you know, it's it's something where it's like, I guess, two Apple keynotes in. I mean, I, it, it's great. I mean, certainly the, the attention and the, and, the, and the good that we're doing about preserving this thing is good, but it also serves as an example. Like people need an example to understand what can you do Frankly, for the, I mean, the, the fact that there's buzzwords like NFTs and the metaverse, all these things, it's just actually crazy because those, those things have now become completely meaningless. But if you think about like preserving the history of structure, being able to tell these certain stories, archiving that, it is an archive. And we do use the blockchain for that. And there is a system that we've created for that. And for any, anyone else, that's something that has value to company, you know, to, to institutions like the Smithsonian. And certainly for the arm of, of both CBS and you know, fans and Ron Bray alike that want to preserve it. There is a commercial component, which is we also have investment from Warner Brothers, from Disney. They're, they they own no toy stock uh, since 2016. We did something very similar to the Iron Archive. We did the Batman Batcave experience, which was a perfect recreation of the animated series Batcave overseen by Bruce Timm. And it was, we still have the files, right? We could render it just like they were doing with the Ron Bray Archive. We yeah. just, it was just, I mean, that's, you know, that's the one that I saw. Soon. That's the one that I yeah. saw with you that was just mind-numbingly impressive. And I, I think that's worth just not passing over, which is you do use things like blockchain technology, uh, render tokens, the, the render network for, uh, for the assets and stuff. And this is, these are things that I point to quite often as very tangible, non-hyped implementations of very good use of things like uh, you know, blockchain technology. Yes. So that, that is something that, that is, it's such a fascinating piece because here's the thing that is, that's probably interesting to some people. Every single shot that was more than, I, I mean, I, most of the shots, including the one that, that Apple showed in the, on the iPad yesterday, those are rendered on the render network. Like we basically don't use AWS anymore because the render network has a million GPUs on the wait list. There is, we're still figuring out how to push demand now with, with AI nodes coming to Octane, Cable Diffusion, we can run all these different models. It's going to use up a lot more, but it, it, it basically has been rendering all of the Rodeo Archive materials um, for the artists, you know, since the beginning. And it's what's crazy is that this is something that I guess is, um, I was alluding that there was a scene in a movie that came out this year that was actually rendered on the render network and it showed up in this 4K theatrical release. Um, it may not be disconnected from Star Trek and maybe, you know, it, I, I wanted to be careful about sort of sharing, oversharing until I get full clearance, but we're seeing films that are rendered this way. And I was telling the studio guys, you know, this, this, this movie that was just done, it, you have an NFT, you have a receipt for it. Like this, in this month, in this day, while the image isn't necessarily available, we have it, you know, explore it. And, and the frame that went into this, you know, literally this fraction of a second is here and it's all on the Ethereum blockchain. So if you're talking about having cells or having things that are, there's, there's provenance going onto what's going on in render that even predates Ethereum because we have basically a, a ledger from the AWS days as validated by, you know, transaction of money. Now it's a transaction of cryptocurrency. And the utility of that is, is incredible. And so we have artists like people Unpacked that are doing generative art. They just do a render and they can prove that every component of that was done by them. Every variation on that 
can be, you know, composed by somebody else. And this kind of provenance is so important now that we're getting into the world of generative art and deepfakes even. And, and, and frankly, you know, people and PAC make hundreds of millions of dollars in NFT sales. So there's something to all that that is interesting. But our, our place is basically, can we disrupt the, the cloud GPU business, make it cheaper, make it more available so that services, whether it's rendering, whether it's, it's AI art, all those things become so cheap that you can, you can subsidize them in different ways that were impossible back in, you know, you know years back. So that's, that's one of the business models that we have. And, and I think that, you know, the, the blockchain piece, the cloud piece is a huge part of our, our DNA. Uh, and then there's also open standards. You know, we, everything that goes into the um, render network and even Octane, that, you know, it, it's, it's a spec that we helped create with Cable Labs. They were initially um, the ones that started MPEG LA. And we're in Kronos. We're working with, with, with Apple, NVIDIA, and others on USB extensions. But the idea is that we end up with um, something that's not Octane's or Beck's format, but something that's a version of it, like called ITMF. And that's kind of a useful piece that is now getting a lot more attention. People want a standard for the metaverse. They want something that can take something from Unreal or Unity or, or Blender and compose those things. And here we have the system to render it, to, to provide provenance and all these other factors. So I, I think that those are important components that go above and beyond just the commercial aspects of what we're doing. Open standards are important and also showing the utility of, of where decentralization um, yeah. can, can can offer something better than what came before, not just replace it, but really improve it by an order of magnitude. That's one of the goals with, with the rendering network. Yeah, yeah, the whole, uh, and and quite frankly, we we uh, probably need to do a, a whole separate podcast to discuss the uh, the implications and just, you know, that we have done pieces in the past, but just how great that is that you've been uh, building that solidly now for, it's got to be like three, four years, right? Like at least- Five years, uh, yeah. Five years, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are very happy that they joined you early in that process because uh, it's really uh, gone uh, gone well. But look, we've run out of time, but Jules, thank you so much for taking time to talk us through this. We've been uh, so looking forward to talking to you and catching up, mate. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. Always a pleasure talking and um, look forward to talking more. There's more to come for sure. Thank you, Jules, for taking the time to chat with us and provide us some more detail about those really interesting projects the team has been working on. Really great to hear about them in such a great detail. So thanks for that. And for those of you who are listening, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the FX podcast and for your support of FX Guide in general. And until next time on the FX podcast, for my partner, Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.